Oh, I want to begin at the beginning of what makes us human, which is, um, I think, contained within our capacity to see ourselves in the other, which is most succinctly stated in the universal principle called the Golden Rule. <clears throat> One night, I was awakened at about 12.30. I had a phone call from Bob McNamara, former Secretary of Defense of the United States, former head of the Ford Motor Company, former head of the World Bank, in which he said, Jonathan, I want to cite a footnote of yours from a law review article that you did. Now, in the law review article, I had argued that it would be good if nations treated other nations as they wanted to be treated, and that that should be taught in every international relations program and every peace studies program in the world. But when you write a law review article, you have to give authority to any principle you put forward. If you say the sun's going to come up tomorrow, you have to cite the National Weather Service. So I have cited a footnote. Buddhism, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Christianity, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. Confucianism, do not unto others what you would not have them do unto you. Hinduism, this is the sum of duty. Do not unto others that which would cause you pain if done to you. Islam, no one of you is a believer until he desires for the other that which he desires for himself. Jainism, in happiness and suffering and joy and grief, we should regard all creatures as we regard our own self. Judaism, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow man. That is the law, all the rest is commentary. And this goes on, it's quite extensive, it's quite universal. So I told Secretary McNamara that it was unnecessary to cite me that this is fair use under copyright law. And he said, oh no, I want to. It's really important to me. I said, well, why is it so important? And, uh, and he said, because until I read that, I didn't know that Buddhists and Muslims had the golden rule. And I said, in all due respect, sir, the golden rule does not come from religion. It comes from the architecture of the human conscience. And God talks to everybody. And then he said, and he was at least 83. I know, I'm just learning that. What a guy. Just learning that. Beginner's mind, as the Buddhists would say, the best of minds. I think that is what's needed if the Millennium Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals and the commitments made under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and the entire UN system is to go forward, which is an, a recognition of a universal global ethical norm based on the Golden Rule. The idea that we would have multiple tiers of societies with different sets of laws is simply unsustainable. And the place where that fissure in equity is most prominent is in the issue of nuclear weapons. The idea of a handful of states saying these weapons are good for us but not good for you violates that very basic principle. When that principle is violated in your family, your family will fall apart. When this principle is adhered to, not only do you find peace and harmony in the family, but you find peace and harmony within yourself. Because there is a teleology, there is a purpose to our being born, and it is to develop our humanity. 
and when we apply these universal spiritual, ethical, moral norms in our lives, it brings stability, it brings inner peace, it brings real peace. So this principle stretches from the depth of our own hearts all the way to geopolitical dynamics. If I'm smoking a cigar, it will not be possible for me to convince you not to smoke cigarettes. Imagine if the Biological Weapons Convention said, no country can use polio or smallpox as a weapon, but we will allow nine countries to use the plague as a weapon. We would obviously say that's incoherent, that's unsustainable, that's absurd. But that's precisely the regime we have with nuclear weapons. And that's why it's unstable. Now, the Millennium Development Goals, in a way, focus our attention on the least amongst us. Very basic principle in Matthew's Gospel. The Lord says, you can find me in the least amongst you. And Mahatma Gandhi said, if you wanted to evaluate the, the clarity and the value of a policy, imagine the poorest, most disenfranchised person you've ever met. Look at his face and question, does this policy help that person? If it helps them, it's a good policy. If it causes more suffering to them, it's not a good policy. When we look at the Sustainable Development Goals, in a way, they focus on that. They not only focus on the health of the poorest amongst us, but they, they focus on the health of the very planet itself. And in that way, they're extremely laudable. I'm most concerned with the ones that focus on the global commons, because I think that it is focusing on our common good that's most lacking, and I'll come to that in a little bit. But, you know, when you look at them, there, there, there's 160 some odd uh, commitments within them, and it's just all over the place. And I hope they can synthesize it down to something a little bit clearer, like zero emissions, zero poverty. <laughs> you know, something that just cut, gets, gets right to the point. But one of them, one of the ones that I find most interesting is uh, number 16, because it, uh, it addresses what I think is essential to any progress in the uh, Sustainable Development Goals. And I'm going to come to that in context, because I think context is always important. The Holy See issued a statement recently at the Vienna Conference on the Humanitarian Consequences of Nuclear Weapons, in which uh, Pope Francis said, world leaders must be reminded that the commitment to disarm embedded in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and other international documents is more than a legal political detail. It is a moral commitment on which the future of the world depends. Pacta sunt servanda is a first principle of the international system because it is the foundation upon which trust can be built. Now the very first resolution of the General Assembly of the United Nations called for the elimination of atomic bombs. And that remains a promise that has not been fulfilled. Pacta sans servanda is Latin for agreements must be kept. This maxim is one of the most ancient foundations of law and civilization itself. It is inextricably connected to good faith. Without it, the tools of law, words, and agreements become empty and entire social edifices collapse. Nations cannot work together, nor commerce flourish without confidence in the integrity of promises. International stability and development at every level of society, including addressing poverty, sustainable development, the health of the oceans, the health of the environment, 
depend on this principle. In the road to dignity by 2030, ending poverty, transforming all lives, and protecting the planet, a synthesis report of the Secretary General on the post-2015 Sustainable Development Agenda as part of the follow-up to the UN Millennium Summit, the rule of law is extolled as a necessary element for development eight specific times. Section 78 ex says explicitly, the rule of law must be strengthened at the national and international level to secure justice for all. Similarly, in the report of the Open Working Group of the General Assembly on Sustainable Development Goals, there are numerous references to the importance of the rule of law. Paragraph 12 states, good governance and the rule of law at the national and international levels are essential for sustained, inclusive, and equitable economic growth, sustainable development, the eradication of poverty and hunger. If good faith efforts to fulfill promises and obligations are not part of a culture, then the rule of law will never gain traction. Without the culture, words become empty shells and raw power rules. The most powerful must set an example. We live in an age where local cultures are dramatically impacted by world culture. World culture is led by the most powerful. Only when those empowered to choose to obey the law demonstrate commitment to obeying it does it become publicly apparent that the value of the rule of law is precious. When the powerful flaunt their legal obligations, when their promises are not treated as binding them, infusing the rule of law at the most local level becomes problematic. The most serious challenge that humanity faces is the fact that there are 16,000 nuclear weapons floating over our heads today. The sword still hangs over our heads as it did in the height of the Cold War. And the major military doctrines of the major powers of the world still is based on strategic stability or a contrary doctrine, pursuit of dominance. Those are the two military doctrines that we're living with. Completely contrary, but, and neither of which are particularly measurable, because of these doctrines, they are intransigent in, 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 in giving up these horrific devices. Despite the fact that the International Court of Justice has unanimously ruled that there is a legal obligation to negotiate to completion a legal instrument eliminating nuclear weapons. Despite the fact that the President of the United States has said it is his vision to pursue the peace and security of the world without nuclear weapons. Despite the fact that it is an affirmative, positive law, legal obligation under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Despite that fact, the nuclear weapon states refuse to commence negotiations on a convention, on a treaty, banning nuclear weapons. They argue the incremental steps of pursuing a test ban treaty, a fissile material cutoff treaty, and further reductions under the START process will lead us to changing the circumstances, and later on we can start talking about a treaty. But the fact is, there isn't going to be entry into force of the test ban treaty, because there isn't the galvanizing political message that we've got to get to disarmament. There isn't going to be any further cuts under the START Treaty because we are re-invoking the hostility and toxicity of the Cold War. There isn't going to be a fissile material cutoff treaty, of, uh, a, a treaty cutting off any nuclear-capable fissile materials because 
that nuclear weapon states are saying we'll negotiate it in the Conference on Disarmament, which is 61 nations operating under a consensus basis. They haven't even been able to get an agenda in over a decade. That is not good faith. That violates the most basic premise that promises must be kept. And for those of us who care about the importance of the Sustainable Development Goals, for us to be silent on the most serious promises, on the most existential threat that humanity has ever faced, is not responsible. For anyone who cares about the climate, they have to also care about this misdefinition of security. For nuclear weapons do not bring security, they breed insecurity, and they are a barrier to the necessary human solidarity that must be achieved to meet these goals. Moreover, they are an affront to the basic ethic, ethical norm of treating others as we want to be treated. I think part of the reason why the political momentum is waning is that there isn't a clear vision of what success should look like. There isn't a clear vision of what the common good is. So I've written something that I'm considering uh, sending to the Secretary General of the UN. I'm going to read it to you, soliciting your responses to it. I'm looking in this audience, and this is an extremely learned and high-achieving audience. There are, I mean, there are people here who, uh, I, I see my friend Ingo who's an advisor to the elders, and, and one of the world's most important journalists from the BBC, and, and my friend Don Ferenz, who grew up at the feet of one of the world's great, great leaders of our time, Ben Ferenz, who was, the, it was one of the prosecutors at Nuremberg, and uh, one, of the, one of the world's leading physicists, Dr. Watson himself, right here in the front row, one of the early pugwash. I mean, this is a rare opportunity to share something and get some feedback. And where is Liz? Because I really like her feedback, too. And thank you, Liz, for bringing us together wherever you are at this moment. Oh, and I, have, I see my, my brilliant son, who is the Green Growth Fellow at the Overseas Development Institute. He's always been 10 times smarter than me. Okay. The first world leader who identifies and leads in comprehensively addressing the unique challenges of the 21st century will do the world a great service. Because of advances in science, technology, and social organization, a series of challenges to all people and nations have arisen that cannot be met except by new levels of global cooperation. Achieving the protection of the global commons, the climate, the rainforests, the health of the oceans, preventing the spread of pandemic diseases, ensuring cybersecurity, and the stability of financial markets, and ending threats posed by weapons of mass destruction will be global common goods of the highest order. The United Nations should lead in bringing world leaders together to identify and commence maturely and responsibly achieving, in, in caps, our common good, a secure, sustainable future. Thus far, our current institutional arrangements have proven inadequate to even define with clarity the fact that today our common interests vastly outweigh our perceived differences. It is worth noting that the issues constituting our common good are amenable to empirical verification. What is needed is clarity of purpose under your leadership. The United Nations could, be, could, be, uh, could begin a process to define a 21st century approach to realistic, holistic, verifiable, achievable, and sustainable security. 
Effectively addressing today's serious and numerous regional crises, be it Ebola outbreaks in Western Africa, violent Islamist extremism in Syria, Iraq, Palestine, or Nigeria, shadowy Russian involvement in Ukrainian unrest, or nuclear proliferation in the Middle East and South Asia will be dramatically enhanced by the very process of identifying common compelling interests. Many of tomorrow's crises du jour will be avoided if we are successful. It is thus proposed that the Secretariat institute the Project for the Common Good. The Secretary General of the United Nations alone is capable of convening all key heads of government and state once every three years to define the challenges that require cooperation to be met, and which, if not met, would dramatically impact adversely all people of this and future generations. Identifying a clear compass point toward the common good will have a galvanizing impact unlike any other short of total global war. It may be that such a process actually prevents any current or future crisis du jour from escalating into such a war. It will certainly make clear that our different interests must not overshadow the requirements for cooperation. Despite today's headlines, commencing this process soon is important. Who, after all, can possibly predict the next proverbial Archduke Ferdinand assassination? In an age of increasing automation underscored by the horrifically huge arsenals of weapons of mass destruction, the consequences of such rapid escalation are too acute, and we cannot entrust our current institutions and international relationships with preventing them. We must do better, make no mistake, cooperation in the 21st century is no longer a choice, it is an imperative. Those that cling onto archaic paradigms based on zero-sum theories of security will lag to the detriment and very survival of all. The culmination of the summit will be a communique to the world identifying the common good of working together cooperatively to meet specific universal challenges. This communique will help attract public and political support to work together despite our numerous legitimate and normal differences of perspective and interest. Moreover, the project for the common good will serve to invigorate many of the existing institutional arrangements, national, multilateral, universal, already working in the United Nations system. Bringing the concept of the common good into the public debate itself will be of enormous benefit. Our current institutional arrangements and approach to achieving security would benefit from a clarity of purpose that can actually bring us together. The leadership role in defining and trailblazing this new paradigm is appropriate and necessary for the United Nations. Essentially what I'm saying is that the current paradigm for security is flawed. There's no military solution in Kashmir, Palestine, anywhere, Syria. And the galvanizing effect of having a common purpose and a new definition of security, I believe, is the only way we will be able to minimize the militarization of our cultures and our international relations. I don't believe the diplomats who made the commitments in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to move toward the elimination of nuclear weapons made those commitments in bad faith. But it is apparent that when they returned to their interagency reviews in their capitals, that the military voices overshadowed the political, legal, and very important commitments that were made. They're simply not being fulfilled. And this is 
since the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was indefinitely extended in 1995 based on the affirmative commitment to move to a nuclear weapons-free world. I believe that the best thing we can do is to put a vision of cooperation clearly in front of humanity. The Sustainable Development Goals are, I believe, not obtainable without that level of cooperation. It's good to have them. It's good to have aspirations like that. When Thomas Jefferson said, all men are created equal, and it's self-evident, it clearly was not self-evident. Whether it's self-evident now, I don't think so. I mean, some of us are tall, some are short, some are handsome, some are stupid, some are rich, some are poor. Is it self-evident that we're all created equal? And at the time he wrote it, half of the population didn't even have citizenship. And black people in the country in which he wrote it really didn't even have personhood. And you had to have property to vote. How could you have called that self-evident? But it was an ought. It was an ought. It was a moral ought. It was a wise ought. And it has had a magnetic effect on the world. It is the norm to which all civilized societies strive. It is an ought. And the is of the 1780s, 1770s, when he wrote it, that is, has moved much closer to, the, to that ought today. We need to have an ought put forward of global cooperation for the common good. That's the best way I think, uh, that's the best way I think we can move the world. Thank you very much. <laughs>